thinking longer term makes for more valuable companies and better outcomes for stakeholders at the same time. It's when you look for the short-term sugar high, short-term profits, that's when trouble happens. Welcome to The Great Reset, a podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at how we can build a cleaner, fairer, smarter world after COVID-19. This week, how can we wean companies off that sugar high of short-term profits and get them to tackle the big social and environmental problems such as poor wages and climate change? We hear from the authors of Accountable, a book that tells us how, after decades of talk, we can finally make stakeholder capitalism work. The median shareholder in America, the typical shareholder, they're something like 50 years old and $60,000 in a broadly diversified retirement account. Their best interest is not in maximizing share price at a specific oil and gas company today. Their best interest is in the long-term sustainable development of the global economy. Even before the COVID pandemic, an increasing number of companies were signing up to that idea of serving the wider society rather than just their shareholders. But will this ever be more than just rhetoric? If we can sit here as capitalists and say, we believe in capitalism, we believe capitalism can be good, and we need to reform it, and then all of our pronouncements turn out to have been hollow, I think that might be our last great shot at at reforming it. Subscribe to The Great Reset on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Robin Pomeroy, digital editor at the World Economic Forum, and with a look at how we can make companies accountable to all of us, I don't think we can survive another cycle of wishful thinking. This is The Great Reset. It was almost half a century ago, actually in 1973, that the head of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, issued the Davos Manifesto with the idea that companies must not only serve their shareholders, the people who own the company, but all stakeholders, everyone their actions might affect. It took decades, in fact, until last year, for the US Business Roundtable, America's most influential business lobby group, to announce it had formally embraced the idea, with over 180 chief executives signing up to a statement of purpose saying their companies must benefit all stakeholders, customers, employees, suppliers, communities, and shareholders as well. So, great, right? Job done. Let's sit back and watch companies make the world a fairer, greener place, stop exploiting workers, and avert the disaster of climate change. Sceptical? You should be. In this week's Great Reset podcast, I talk to two sceptical idealists committed to the idea that capitalism can be made to work for the good of all, but only if we can find a way to hold them accountable for their lofty rhetoric. This is one of them, Michael O'Leary. You'd be hard-pressed to find a CEO today who did not say, Our workers are our greatest assets and we care about stewardship of the environment. But the problem is, as as great as all these commitments are, that unless we've got these clear sort of mandatory metrics to hold CEOs, hold investors, hold companies accountable to these commitments they're making, they will end up winning the battle of ideas but losing the war of substantive action. Michael O'Leary and co-author Warren Valdmanis both have a background in private equity investment. And with their MBAs from Harvard and Stanford, they say in their book, which is called Accountable, we can debunk the myths of capitalist reform from the inside. They spoke to me about what they call their unsentimental blueprint for how to build an economy that generates prosperity without peril. Both Michael and I are committed uh, capitalists. Uh, I think we both um, are aware that, you know, over the past uh, 250 years or so, capitalism has done a tremendous good. You know, in the three millennia prior, um, GDP growth you know, per capita was exactly 0%. Um, and since then, it's gone up by 37 times. 
Um, and, uh, you know, in, in the, just since 1990, we've lifted a billion people out of poverty you know, just in the last 30 years alone. So capitalism is an enormously powerful engine uh, for good. Um, but uh, I think we'd also all agree that um, as practiced uh, in the last sort of 40 years or so, there have been all kinds of disturbing uh, inequities uh, and problems related to the environment, problems related to uh, equality, problems related to health and wellness. And so our book sets out uh, to look at the root causes of those problems. Uh, and it also sets out to evaluate the various efforts going on out there to try to address those problems um, and with the hope that we can sort of create a greatest hits package uh, recommendations to make uh, make a more prosperous, but also more just and sustainable capitalism. And the two of you are committed capitalists. Tell me about your background, the way you approach this. Well, the two of us come originally from the world of traditional private equity. We both uh, spent most of our early careers at Bain Capital. And and so we came at the, the field of impact investing, this idea of investing for both financial return, but also demonstrated social and environmental impact. We came to it, I think, initially as skeptics. You know, I think there's some some skepticism that exists among a lot of our uh, compatriots in the financial world that they spend their entire careers trying to maximize a single variable, risk-adjusted return, and that we've come along as impact investors that have tried to add in all these other constraints and all these other goals. Uh, and how could that not be coming at the cost of financial return? But I think we share that same skepticism that a lot of these reforms to capitalism, that they could be successful. And that was what we tried to come to the book with, was trying to understand how, how all these different movements fit together, how much of them were just marketing hot air, uh, and how much of them were actually fundamental enough to change the way the corporations operate. Just a note on that phrase, impact investment. That's where investors are putting money into a company, yes, for profit, but also for some kind of outcome that they've decided is good. That might be in education, say, or healthcare, or clean energy. I asked the authors why we shouldn't just give up on the idea of making companies good and let them make as much money as they want, but have governments regulate them on things such as how they treat their workers or how much pollution or carbon dioxide they can emit. Warren Valdmanis. Well, look, uh, Robin, for sure there is a role for government and government regulation. As we point out in our book, uh, government in America has done some great things with regulation, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. We think there's an important role for government to help us price carbon so that when companies uh, go off and pursue uh, profits, uh, they're accountable for the full range of costs that they, you know, of producing this, the, the goods and services that they create. But we also think that uh, companies uh, have, uh, have come to uh, behave as though the only thing that mattered is short-term profits. Um, and we have this benefit. Uh, of being private equity investors where we were holding companies for four, five, six, sometimes longer uh, years. Uh, and uh, I think what we learned, uh, frankly, what I learned uh, during my time at Bain Capital before I became an impact investor was that thinking longer term makes for more valuable companies and better outcomes for stakeholders at the same time. Uh, it's when you look for the short-term uh, sort of sugar high of short-term profits to please, uh, you know, to, you know, to please the quarterly earnings-focused people. That's when trouble happens. And so, for us, um, there's just a lot of unexplored potential at this at, at the intersection of the social and the commercial. Um, and we, you know, we wanted to, to to write a blueprint on how to explore that. Now, the truth is, uh, companies are getting that joke. 
but they don't have all the tools. They don't know how to think longer term because they've been trained in short termism for so long. And so what we wanted to do was explore how to do that. And at one point in the book, you indicate that this isn't a new thing, although it's flavor of the month and you would hope and I would hope it's not a flash in the pan. You quote this, a 1961 survey revealed that 83% of executives believed it was unethical to work only in the interests of shareholders. I was really surprised at that. You seem to be suggesting we'd be going back to kind of the natural order of things or to a golden era. What, what, what do you think? Well, there's a lot of people in this field who would point to the post-war era as a time when stakeholder governance reigned more supreme. This was a time when managers, business managers, saw it as their mandate to balance the competing interests coming from workers and governments, from consumers, and from shareholders. But shareholders were doing well in this period. And so you, know, you look at some, some stats around, say, um, the ratio of CEO to median worker pay, that today is something like 300 to 1 in the United States. You go back to the 1960s, and it's something like 20 to 1. So the CEO was making much more than the median worker, but only 20 times more, not 300 times more. Uh, and the same thing you'd saw with, say, how long shareholders held stocks on average. So today, there's so much trading that happens in the capital markets that the average holding period for a stock is something like six months, eight months in that range. You go back to the 1960s, it was like eight years. We can no more turn back the clock to the 1960s than we can undo globalization or we can undo the development of a lot of other nations. And so for us, it's not so much about nostalgia as it is trying to use some of what was good about that period or some of what was good about kind of even earlier periods when local ownership reigned supreme and try to figure out how can we tweak companies, the investing markets today to get us closer back to what the, the ideal would have looked like. You're listening to The Great Reset and we'll be right back after this. Word that next week, The Great Reset is going daily to cover the World Economic Forum's Jobs Reset Summit, a four-day event from October the 20th where experts from around the world will meet online to seek ways of improving the world of work, which is going through unprecedented disruption. By 2025, if you look at today's tasks, humans and machines will be at par in terms of how those tasks are being divided. That basically means 85 million jobs will be fully lost, but it will still be more than that that will be gained. That's Sadia Zahidi, Managing Director of the World Economic Forum, who's hosting the four-day event. After years of growing income inequality, concerns about losing our jobs to robots and algorithms, and rising social discord, we now have the devastating impact of COVID-19. The summit will ask, what hopes can we have of creating well-paid, rewarding, sustainable jobs for millions of people around the world? COVID-19, that's going to create a double disruption scenario for most workers. If in the past there were concerns about technology displacing them, we've now got not just technology, but also a recession displacing them. The summit will look at the economic outlook, wages, education, training, diversity and equity, all in the shadow of the pandemic, which has had some unexpected consequences on work, such as increasing the burden on women. The double shift is basically that women are in the workplace, but then they're also taking on the majority of the care responsibilities in the household. What's happened now is a sort of double-double shift. There is that extra stretch of hours in the workplace, but in addition to that, there are increased care responsibilities in the home. That's all on the Great Reset podcast, daily for four days from October the 20th to cover the Jobs Reset Summit. You can follow all our coverage of the event on weforum.org and across social media with the hashtag Jobs Reset. 
But right now on this episode of The Great Reset, we're speaking to the authors of Accountable on how we can make sure companies make good on their promises to do good. I asked Michael O'Leary and Warren Valdmanis about climate change. They favour putting a price on carbon dioxide emissions to ensure companies pay for their climate impact and have an incentive to change. But, I asked, isn't that a matter for regulators, not companies? Well, it's for the regulators, but you can't forget the, the huge role that companies play in what regulators decide. Uh, I think maybe we like to look at this world you know, cleanly bifurcated around the public and private sectors. But in the US right now, most public companies will lobby nominally on behalf of shareholders, but they won't disclose what they're spending, how they're spending it, in what ways. And, and more recently, you've seen some oil and gas companies start saying that they support a carbon tax. Uh, but without a doubt, through their long history, they've been undermining the sorts of regulations that we have. We do advocate a carbon tax. So they've been undermining those sorts of regulations. I think one thing that we try to do in the book is to pull back and think, if, if one way people have told the story of capitalism the last 50 years is that it's been shareholders winning at the expense of stakeholders, that as companies maximize profits, that comes out of the pocket of workers and in the pocket of shareholders. And so we tried to look at who are these shareholders? Who is the median shareholder in America? What we found is the median shareholder in America, the typical shareholder, there's something like 50 years old with $60,000 in a broadly diversified retirement account. They can't even access that capital for the next 20 years. If they're invested in target retirement date funds, as many people are, they hold literally 10,000, 15,000 stocks across the world. So you think about what is in their best interest? Their best interest is not in maximizing share price at a specific oil and gas company today. Their best interest is in the long-term sustainable development of the global economy. And so something like climate change, when we hear, oh, climate change is a financial risk, climate change is an important risk for companies to consider. If you're a typical shareholder today who's broadly diversified, climate risk is probably the biggest financial risk in your portfolio, which means that if companies are representing the best interests of their shareholders, they should be doing everything they can to be mitigating climate risk and turning that around. And you're starting to see early hints of that, of both shareholders holding companies responsible and then companies acting more in the best interest of shareholders with regards to climate. You're starting to see it with commitments like BPs and other oil and gas companies that are finally putting a, a line in the sand of saying, we're going to hit this science-based target on carbon reductions by this date that is in line with the Paris Accords. And it'll be something to make sure we keep them held accountable to that. Uh, but I think that gives us some amount of hope that in addition to the regulatory changes we need, which we do need, that companies can also be leading. I think the worry for us, you know, going back to your earlier question about how, why not just leave all this up to government? I think our worry is that we've got an administration in the U.S. right now where in an otherwise unremarkable press release, the Department of Energy started referring to natural gas as molecules of U.S. freedom, which is not quite the prelude to the carbon tax we advocate. So this problem is so large, we need an all-hands-on-deck approach to solve it. Well, one of the things I think it's really heartening, Robin, and one of the reasons why I'm so happy to be talking to the World Economic Forum is you, the report that, that you guys put out uh, in collaboration with the big four accounting firms uh, back in September you know, um, emphasizes the need for measurement and charts a way forward that's actually achievable. The report that Warren Valdmanis is referring to there was by the World Economic Forum and the so-called big four accountancy firms, Deloitte, EY, 
KPMG and PwC. That report sets out ways we can measure companies' performance on environmental and social parameters in a way that will be standardised around the world and could be externally audited to give investors, or indeed any stakeholders, a credible idea of how companies are performing in those areas. And this is really at the heart of his book. Once companies put social and environmental responsibility at the heart of what they do, which the authors argue they must do to prosper long term, they must be able to account for that by publishing verifiable reports on the progress on those things like climate change. I'll put links to that report in the article that accompanies this episode on our website. Just go to wef.ch slash podcasts. Here's Valdmanis again. If you went back before the Great Depression, there weren't even standardized accounting metrics. You know, p- people would say I, our revenue is uh, you know $100 million for this year. And if you want to know more, come to our offices in Iowa and we'll tell you more. You know, I, I think now we're moving to a place where ESG metrics have to be standard, clear, mandatory. And if companies would only follow uh, your recommendations, I think we'd be a lot closer to getting companies to be accountable for their climate emissions. Well, there is a move in some jurisdictions to make those mandatory for public listed companies. Would that help? I think it would be enormously helpful. Um, but I think it would be nice if um, corporations and, and bodies of, of corporations like the Business Roundtable in the US, where they make public pronouncements about their intentions to be more stakeholder focused. Why don't they follow that up with measures and say, the Business Roundtable is adopting the World Economic Forum measures. Wouldn't that be an enormous step forward in stakeholder capitalism. That would put real teeth behind you know, statements of principle and, 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 and happy talk. I think it would be really, really helpful. The risk is that right now we've got near universal adoption of these kind of commitments to a broader set of stakeholders. You'd be hard pressed to find a CEO today who did not say, you know, our workers are our greatest assets and we care about stewardship of the environment. But the problem is as, as great as all these commitments are, that unless we've got these clear sort of mandatory metrics to hold CEOs, hold investors, hold companies accountable to these commitments they're making, they will end up winning the battle of ideas, but losing the war of substantive action. And they will end up seeing evidence of stakeholder capitalism through things like the Davos Manifesto, the Business Roundtable Statement on Corporate Purpose, or Larry Fink at BlackRock and his wonderful letters. We'll see evidence of stakeholder capitalism everywhere but where it matters which is in the actual lives of stakeholders. You put some great statistics in the book about the amount of money companies might spend to make themselves look good, the kind of greenwash effect, and the amount of money they're spending either investing in bad things or paying for lobbying for things that will go against the interests of their customers and and that median um, shareholder you were talking about. One statistic you give is in America, there's this great, thing about philanthropy. So earn lots of money, but then give, give a chunk of it away. Uh, but you say something like, if 2% of GDP is going on charity, that means 98% isn't. And the point of reforming capitalism to some extent is to put that 98% to good use. There's a lot of talk out there about good guys and bad guys and who are the villains of capitalism. But the reality is, I think most business leaders actually care about the same things that everyday people do. They want to live in a, you know, a sustainable world that you know, treats the planet well. They want their fellow citizens to have the opportunity to advance. You know, they want fair treatment of workers. Um, but the, the, the challenge is that um, you know, one of the models for doing all of that is 
Um, I go to work in my day job and I do whatever is required to earn a profit. And then I take, you know, some of the profit that I've made and I give it away, uh, you know, philanthropically. And that model dates back to Andrew Carnegie, who had this whole philosophy around the gospel of wealth and you got to make money and then you got to give it away. And while, um, you know, we think there's, you know, philanthropy is, is wonderful and, and should be encouraged. But at the same time, if 98% of the economy is pulling in the other direction, you know, if you give, give away 2%, but 98% is pulling the other direction, you're not going to, we're not going to achieve a more just um, and sustainable capitalism. And so one of the big um, points of emphasis in our book is how do you create more purpose at corporations? How do you ensure that our day jobs um, are, are more focused on adding value, making a bigger pie truly um, for society in ways that are sustainable, as opposed to you know, creating cosmetic things, which you know, companies, PR departments love to create you know, well-publicized philanthropic efforts that make them look good. But why don't we look into the core of the corporation, try to find, figure out what are they doing to become better? Yeah, this is great concept of rational hypocrisy, conflicting demands from stakeholders to do good, from shareholders to do well. And so they're responding, managers are responding with this sort of rational hypocrisy where they've now changed the messaging without changing the mission. The risk, unless you can hold these business leaders accountable for these commitments they're making, is that all of this ends as a, a thin veneer of stakeholder capitalism on what is still kind of the rotten foundation of shareholder privacy. So how do we make sure it's not a thin veneer anymore? The buzz acronym at the moment is ESG, Environment, Social and governance. A few years ago, it was CSR, corporate social responsibility. We've had mission statements, which have, I'm sure have their value. You talk about a charter, companies having a charter in which the purpose is ingrained into everything they do. It all sounds great, but isn't it just going to be another cycle of wishful thinking? Mm. I don't think we can survive another cycle of wishful thinking. I think part of the reason why we've got the movement we have now is because there's so much distrust in capitalism right now. In the US, if you look at young adults, people under 40, less than half of people support capitalism. Less than half of people believe that the financial markets or that, that our capital markets are a force for good in our economy. Less than a quarter of people trust business executives to tell the truth or do what's morally right. And I think part of the reason why we've seen this growth of ESG or CSR, or this whole alphabet soup of reforming capitalism, is because people have lost so much faith. Now, Warren and I, when we were first launching the Impact Fund, we were at an impact investing conference in the US. I was talking to someone who's kind of a, an old hand, who's been at this for decades before the term impact investing had even come along. And at the time, we were in something like the seventh or eighth year of a booming economy. And I asked him, uh, you know, when, we, when the next recession comes, um, you know, will people turn away from impact investing? Will impact investing turn have just been kind of this, this boom time, you know, everyone's making money, everything feels good, let's do it. And he said, no, in, in times of recession, when people are most fed up with the traditional financial system, that's actually when people were turning towards things like impact investing as a sort of contrarian uh, move away from, from business as usual. The problem is that today, we've kind of made this jump from impact investing and ESG being fringe to being mainstream, which means that turns out that this latest set of promises proves hollow, I think it'll undermine that trust even more. And people will become so fed up that all of this, if we can sit here as capitalists and say, you know, we believe in capitalism, we believe capitalism can be good and we need to reform it. 
and then all of our pronouncements turn out to have been hollow, I think that might be our last great shot at, at reforming it. And so how do you actually hold business leaders accountable? I think it starts with metrics. Warren was discussing earlier, unless we can actually create an objective yardstick by which to measure companies' carbon emissions, you know, basic things. Right now, companies will report that they've got a diversity policy, but they won't report on the actual diversity of their workforce. Or they'll report on a climate policy, but not report on, you know, on an audited way on, uh, on their emissions or their water use. So we need objective, mandatory, audited metrics by which to judge corporations. And I think another big area is that this has to be led by shareholders. In many ways, it has to be led by shareholders. Because you look at something like the Business Roundtable statement last summer. The Business Roundtable says, very similar to Davos Manifesto, they say you know, corporations should serve all their stakeholders. If they do so well, then shareholders will be well served. And not a month later, the Council of Institutional Investors responded with a statement of their own saying, just a reminder to CEOs, CEOs are appointed by boards, boards are elected by shareholders, their job is to serve shareholders. The Council on Institutional Investors did uh, object to the Business Roundtable statement, but they also said, what specific proposals is the Business Roundtable recommending? What do they actually want to change? Um, and frankly, for investors uh, to have a constructive position on ESG issues, I think they have to know more about the specifics. And to me, that comes back to the recommendations that we spelled out in our book. Uh, we were very clear that metrics is the starting point for accountability. If you can't measure it, you can't uh, understand how companies are progressing or not. So that's a starting point. Um, a, a second element of that is, you know, once you understand metrics and you actually adopt them, you can start compensating people. You can align compensation around those metrics. Um, you can also begin looking at, gee, when I start investing in workers in this way, wow, these productivity metrics also start to go up. So measurement unlocks so many good things. But at its core, if a corporation doesn't know why it exists, it's going to have a hard time setting strategy. And so one of the most important things I learned as an impact investor was purpose is the capstone of strategy and purpose uh, can be expressed through the charter of a corporation. In fact, it used to be mandatory. There are still purpose clauses in the articles of incorporation, but today people write to do what is lawful in the state of Delaware. Not a very inspirational mission and not a clear starting point for strategy. And so I, you know, you know, our, our, I think you know, our book Accountable outlines, how do you identify a company's purpose? How do you put it into your charter? How do you set metrics to hold yourself accountable? How do you begin to look at how those metrics correlate with long-term drivers of value? If, we, if corporations start to do those things, not only will they start serving stakeholders better, they'll serve shareholders better too. Um, and that's when I think we can hope to see, um, you know, institutional investors get on board en masse, as opposed to just doing it in a way that sort of looks good, but isn't substantive. Warren Valdmanis, who with Michael O'Leary wrote Accountable. The book is out now. Just a footnote, the Council of Institutional Investors is the industry body representing, as you may have guessed, institutional investors in the United States. There's just time to tell you about this new podcast from the World Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum has a brand new podcast, Meet the Leader, where the world's top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. 
On this week's Meet the Leader, we talk to IBM's Dario Gill about his idea for a global super squad of scientists who could prevent future calamities with the best technology at their fingertips. Could we mobilize a group of volunteer scientists that would engage ahead of the pandemic or even a meteorite? He'll talk about why we need this super squad, known as the Science Readiness Reserves, and the supercomputer project that inspired it. He'll also explain what makes great collaborations tick and a book he thinks everyone should read. It's not about one single institution that is going to solve our problems, but a different way to collaborate with one another. All this and more on this week's Meet the Leader. Please subscribe to Meet the Leader and to The Great Reset wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find all our audio output on wef.ch slash podcasts. My thanks to Gareth Nolan for help producing this week's podcast. Thanks to you for listening. Until the next one, from me, Robin Palmer at the World Economic Forum, goodbye.